Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sam Keener from the United States, who's going to give us a presentation on Hashimoto's and low-dose naltrexone. Thank you for joining us today. Um, thank you again, Linda, for having me on, on the show today. I wanted to talk today a little bit about how we've been successful in using low-dose naltrexone for Hashimoto's. And this is a disease that is actually near and dear to myself, uh, as I have it, my mother or my grandmother had it, and my daughter has it. So we are very in tune to how um, Hashimoto's has affected our lives and how much this particular medication can be of such a value for us. Um, so this is one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it. I also happen to have a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome. And, and although not something I was going to discuss today, but basically, you know, using low-dose naltrexone has been really beneficial for both of those conditions. Um, so that's what I was uh, very interested in this. So... First of all, we'll just discuss what Hashimoto's is. And, um, you know, I found that I'm still surprised today as to how many people are not aware of the fact that they might have an autoimmune thyroid issue, or many who do don't know that there's a lot of different options and treatments for it. So Hashimoto's, um, as we know, are, is definitely something that's very common and can lead then to uh, the development of hypothyroidism. So it is an autoimmune disease which attacks uh, your own cells and organs and then actually attacks the thyroid gland itself, which then can cause the thyroid to enlarge and it can cause uh, nodules of the thyroid gland as well. So as that tissue of the thyroid gland becomes damaged and inflamed, then our ability to make more thyroid hormone becomes impaired, and then eventually our thyroid function becomes impaired as well. So when I initially diagnose someone with Hashimoto's, I'm very careful to explain to them that Hashimoto's is a separate condition, in my opinion, in terms of treatment versus actual thyroid dysfunction. So I really try to um, have them understand that we're going to be treating it in two different ways. So how we diagnose Hashimoto's is actually quite simple. We can look for an antibody reaction using some simple blood tests um, using the thyroid peroxidase and thyroid glycolin antibody um, uh, testing. And in some cases, we find even if those can be negative, we can also obviously do a thyroid ultrasound. And in some cases, we find Hashimoto's even just from the ultrasound itself. Um, those thyroid antibody levels can range anywhere from, you know, above one or two, all the way up to over a thousand. So once I see the degree of inflammation that they have, um, is when I can determine how aggressive I need to be in treatment. So personally, if I see a level 
that's around five or 10 or 20, which I do see uh, periodically, I'm probably going to try some different approaches and treatments first before I lean on the low-dose naltrexone. But if I find all, you know, right off the bat that their antibody levels are quite high, over 1,000, over 500, then I know I'm going to be a little bit more aggressive and talk to them about the use of low-dose naltrexone. So as I was clinically seen, the higher the antibodies, the more likelihood that they've already developed hypothyroidism or will very quickly. So the symptoms of Hashimoto's, unfortunately, are very the same kind of symptoms that you have with hypothyroidism. So it's not easy for someone to say, oh, well, you know, I might have Hashimoto's if they're just feeling tired or they're losing their hair or they're gaining their or gaining weight. Um, one of the characteristic things that I have seen is people tend to complain that they feel like something is stuck in their throat or that they have some trouble swallowing. So that's one of our first keys to think, okay, is there some inflammation at the gland itself? And then obviously doing an exam is very helpful for that as well. So some as I mentioned before, some people with Hashimoto's may not even have um, many symptoms when they first have antibodies. Um, kind of as a side, I've seen that some people can have antibodies for several years in their teenage years and early 20s. And at some time, there's usually a trigger that can cause those antibodies to elevate or can cause the, the symptoms to become much worse. And that tends to be things like uh, childbirth, or some type of traumatic um, stress issue uh, that happens. COVID, for example, is one of the things that I have seen recently that has been now causing some people to flare and their symptoms to start being an issue. Um, interestingly enough, just as an aside as well, for my daughter, uh, she was a preemie. She was born at 35 uh, weeks, very small, about three pounds, 13 ounces. and she was very, very um, active, even as a baby, even you know, as a young child into her around um, up until she was nine to 10. Around nine or 10, I noticed that she just started becoming more of a little bit of a couch potato and she didn't want to go and play with her friends and she didn't want to do anything. Um, she actually started to pull out her eyelashes and her eyebrows. And I never knew that that was actually one of the symptoms that can be consistent with Hashimoto's. Well, after many, many months of kind of following and monitoring, and honestly, it took me a while for me to even think that that could be an issue for her, we finally got her tested, and her thyroid antibody levels were well above 500, and her thyroid symptoms were, you know, of course, very high. She was very tired. She was getting a little bit of weight. She had become just, you know, really very different than the child that, that, um, uh, that I had, you know, uh, birthed. And then she finally, uh, we got her on treatment with uh, dietary changes, which I'll talk about in medication, and she just became a whole new person. So I just thought that was an interesting symptom that I actually had not ever uh, associated with it. So as I mentioned, the symptoms of hypothyroidism can be fatigue, weight gain, memory loss, brain fog, um, constipation, uh, cold intolerance, dry skin, uh, loss of hair, depression, aches and pains, uh, so heart rate, menstrual irregularities, the loss of the outer third of the eyebrows, which was not her issue. She was actually pulling them out. Um, feeling puffy, and then obviously the, uh, the enlarged thyroid gland itself or the goiter. So how do we go about treating this? So first of all, the first thing I do, as I mentioned before, is I try to separate this into these two different approaches. And I really try first to talk to them about their nutrition and diet. 
So for most people, of course, in the United States of America, we do not have the best diet here. And a lot of our food is very processed. So I try to do some food allergy, food sensitivity testing or gut testing to see if there's any reaction to wheat, uh, to soy, to dairy, to corn. Um, those are our, sort of our big four triggers. We also look for nightshades, uh, some things like eggplant, potatoes, tomatoes, as that can be an issue for many people with Hashimoto's as well. We look for candida or yeast overgrowth in the gut because I have found that to be a struggle as well. If we don't treat that first, sometimes we don't get as much successful treatment for the actual inflammation. So my first discussion with most of my patients is that we have to address their lifestyle. And I try to explain to them that these foods are not necessarily bad. It's what we have done to the food, especially in our country here. I don't know if it's so much of a, you know issue all around the world, but here we do process all of our wheat. Um, we do spray it all down with something called Roundup, which is a chemical a pesticide that can cause a lot of immune dysregulation in our gut. So once I explain that to them, we try, we work with our nutritionist and we find substitutes for them. And I've had young children as my own, uh, starting at age 12, go up all the way up to, you know, adults to really start working on changing their nutrition and diet. So we try to get them to eat more of a healthy wheat-free, soy-free diet for some dairy, for some corn, and then for some nightshade. So it's very individualized. But that's really my first uh, my first recommendation for them. As I mentioned, if their antibody levels, however, are well over 500 to 1,000, then I'm going to also discuss the low-dose naltrexone for them. And then, of course, if they're already starting to have thyroid dysfunction, I'm going to discuss medications, uh, synthetic or other types. Uh, we carry Armour Thyroid here, which has both T4, T3, uh, which is made from the desiccated thyroid of a pig. And there are other natural T4, T3 medications. So lots of different options that we have to give them as well. So what is low-dose naltrexone? So we know that naltrexone was initially used in higher doses to treat opioid addiction and alcohol addiction. And is still used for these types of things. Um, but found uh, that we can use it in low doses, starting around half milligram, all the way up to four and a half milligrams, and in some cases almost up to six, uh, to treat many autoimmune conditions. So what low-dose naltrexone does, it modulates the immune system and reduces inflammation in the body, and therefore then can reduce those thyroid antibody levels and also actually reduce nodules. I have seen that in many of my patients as well. So it blocks and uh, binds and blocks to the opioid receptors, which trick the body into thinking the levels are low. That causes the body to produce more endorphins, which are then important in modulating the immune system. It also binds and blocks the toll-like receptors, which release these inflammatory cytokines then that ultimately reduce inflammation. So long story short, low-dose naltrexone helps with decreasing inflammation. There are some possible side effects to the low-dose naltrexone that we've seen. One of those is fatigue, um, headaches, loss of appetite, the very vivid dreams, um, some nausea and mood swings. But there's many ways to, to, um, to work around those particular side effects. We can start at lower doses. We can start with topical treatment. Uh, we can also have them take it during the day or morning um, so that we don't experience so many of these things. I really haven't had very many people that haven't been able to tolerate it, even in some of the lower doses. Um, and again, have found that it's worked really, really well to decrease um, overall inflammation. 
So we've also, as your, you know, the LDN research site has shown us, there are so many other disease processes that we can use to uh, to work with LDN, which we've used in our own uh, in our own clinic, um, cancer for COVID nineteen, for Lyme, for Crohn's, uh, for weight loss, for fibromyalgia, Parkinson's, um, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, Parkinson's, memory loss, um, ALS, psoriasis. Anyway, the list goes on and on. So. Personally, I've used most, uh, many of these, um, for many of these diseases, I've used low-dose naltrexone and have had some amazing results. Most uh, recently for long-haul COVID, we've had some really good results. And in fact, we have a young girl, 13, who had COVID, uh, now has Hashimoto's and is on LDN and it's really changed her life. Was able to get her back to going back to school, working, functioning, uh, functioning normally, um, having the energy that she needed. Um, to play her volleyball. So she's been uh, very, very exci excited with that. So of course your uh, research trust org is what we have to really owe so much uh, gratitude to for learning about low-dose naltrexone because I'll be very honest, I learned about low-dose naltrexone many, many years ago and probably didn't learn enough about it and didn't use it correctly in the first part of my treatment. Um, and then it was really working with you and Steve from Magnolia Pharmacy, and we really learned uh, how to use it correctly and a lot more about low-dose naltrexone, and therefore have been able to implement it in my practice and have been very, very successful with it. So that uh, was ultimately my presentation, but again, I really wanted to point out that it's, it's just got so many potential uses, and I really hope that more and more practitioners um, and patients become aware of this particular medication and all of its uh, availability and resources that we can use to help our patients. It was interesting when you said that uh, you treat 12-year-olds to adults. I was yes. just wondering, uh, you were saying about your daughter um, having Hashimoto's and you noticed she was becoming a couch potato when she was, did you say nine? Yes, between nine and 10. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how young can somebody be when, you know, a child, when they first start having thyroid issues? They can have thyroid issues even when they're four to five. I think it's becoming more and more of an issue now um, because our children are eating worse and worse food from the very beginning of life, right? So as soon as they start eating, if we don't, if we're not careful that we're trying to give them organic foods or we give them a lot of inflammatory foods, which, um, you know, over here in the United States of America, we have this lovely thing called the children's meal, right? And it's awful because it's nothing but pizza, chicken tenders, you know, just really junk food. And if we really rely on that to feed our children nutrition, I'm starting to see more and more disease processes in our children at a younger age, which is hence why I think we have more attention deficit, we have more, um, you know, anxiety, we have more depression, you know, COVID aside, I think we had a lot of those issues even before uh, COVID began. And I really think a lot of it goes back to what we're feeding our children. I have found that there are no kids meals anywhere else in the world that I know of, because most children, every other country pretty much eat what normal food that the adults eat. It's only in America that we say, oh, this is a kid's meal. So they grow up eating these things, macaroni and cheese, like I said, you know, things that are okay to have once in a while, but when that's their entire diet and they don't know what a vegetable is and they don't have any, you know, experience eating ex except for those maybe four or five things, I think it really does cause more of um, inflammation in the gut. And then I think we're starting to see younger and younger kids who are developing issues with Hashimoto's. We have the same here. Um, when we used to take my grandson out who 
right from the word go ate what we ate and vegetables and you'd go out for a meal and there would be chicken nuggets fish fingers sausages we have here burgers children's meals so we'd go out on a Sunday and the adults were having roasts but that wasn't offered to children and he used to say when they'd come around and what would you like and he'd say I'd like a roast oh we don't do children's (laughs) roasts well can't he just have a half a portion, you know? Um, right. And it's shocking, you know, that they they think that children should eat, you oh, know, absolutely. things, everything with chips, you know, what you call right. fries, but no vegetables. <laughs> there are no vegetables. Um, so that you know, makes a big difference. My kids were the same. So sorry to interrupt you. My kids were the same. So whenever we went out, um, we pretty much just gave them a smaller portion of whatever we're eating. So when they were younger, um, you know, five or six or seven and could order for themselves, the, the uh, you know, the waiters and waitresses would all be, so, always be confused because they would say, I want a filet mignon. <laughs> and they would be like, what? And then they look at me and I'm like, yep, that's what they eat. So, you know, um, it's very interesting. I think it's just really what you raise them with. And I, and I know that kids are picky eaters and trust me, my, my daughter was a very picky and probably ate the worst diet in our family at the time, which is hence why I think her issue started so early, so much earlier for her, because I had already met Dr. William Davis, who wrote the book, Wheat Belly, and had already become gluten-free and my husband and my son had, be, you know, kind of followed suit and we all felt so much better and we, our inflammation decreased and, and, and so many different things uh, improved in our lives, but she was our standard, you know, standout. And so finally, once I sat her down and I said, look, you know, I showed her her lab results and I showed her the numbers and I, this is a 12 year old, right? This is a 12 year old. And I said, look, this means that your body has a lot of inflammation and that's probably from what you're eating. So the first thing we need to do is you know, take out the gluten from your diet. And I was so shocked. She actually agreed the next day. So we cleaned up the pantry, cleaned up everything. And we made it a point to make her lunches, her breakfast, special treats for her. I sat down with her friends and her mom and the moms of those friends who are my friends. And I said, look, you know, we have to all work together. I need you as a community to help me because look at my child. She's not feeling good. She's tired. They all know that she's been pulling out her eyelashes and her eyebrows. It was very obvious. And I said, this is something we all have to do as together as our friends. And so they all went out and made little gluten-free pantries for her. And it was amazing the amount of support she had. So after age 12, it was very easy for her then to, you know, to, we changed everything and she accommodated very well. And now she's 19 at college and she knows how to take care of herself. And she's, you know, and, and she doesn't, it doesn't bother her anymore. You know, it doesn't, it does not a, like, oh, someone's eating pizza. Well, I can have this other pizza. So she's gotten, you know, much more used to it now. Mm-hmm. But if people listening to this have a a small child that is experiencing problems, how would you go about finding somebody who would take it seriously and do testing? So, well, they're coming to me, I'm going to do the testing for them. You know, I think if they're asking for my opinion, if they're not anywhere that I can take care of them, which with the now revolutionary telemedicine, we can do a lot. um, You know, I feel like we, there are, I think it's very much the parent that's the problem that I found. So I have a lot of kids who I've seen and I sit them down and I do exactly what I did with my daughter. I explain to them, even if they're seven or eight or nine, I'm like, you know, this food that you're eating is hurting you. It's making you feel bad. It's hurting your tummy. I put it in whatever words they can understand at their age. And I said, let's find some other things that we can have you eat and see if you don't feel better. So let's just make a you know plan to try this for a few weeks and then see how you feel. And 
it's not usually the kids that are the problem. Um, a lot of times I face the backlash from the parents because they don't want to take the time to make those changes or they think that that child isn't going to agree to do things. And then I find that they don't necessarily, you know, do as well as we did. We were very lucky that she listened. We were very lucky that we had a group of friends that listened and would make sure if they would eat out, they would, you know, choose a restaurant that she could go to. It's not so convenient for everybody else. And I understand that it's not an easy, not an easy transition. The good thing is we have so many, at least here now kind of products on the shelf that are cleaner and easier for some to eat. So we have a a couple of brands, one called Siete, which makes almond flour tortillas and cassava flour tortillas and other things that are very easy to make for a wrapper or sandwich or something like that. Uh, we have some better gluten-free breads that are cleaner ingredients. We have some crackers and cookies that are made with almond flour and coconut flour. So there's a lot more availability now of different resources for them. And it's much easier, I think, to transition than it even was when my child was 12. Um, I also offer in my office, we have a nutrition educator here, and we actually take them to the grocery store, and we do a tour with them there, which I think is very helpful because it shows them, you know, there are so many things you can have, and I think it's so important to train their brain to say, these are all the things I can have, instead of all, these are all the things I cannot have. Um, so once we're able to do that, I think it makes a huge difference for them. So with young children, I think if it's the parent is willing to, to make the changes, we can make a lot of changes for the child. Do you see in the future that that kind of a diet will become the norm rather than the abnormal diet? I don't know. I just came back from Disney World and I can't say that I see that here because I still think the mass amount of America is just overworked, doesn't have time to focus on cooking, isn't educated about food, and they just think that what's out there is okay for them to eat. So they think it's normal to go through fast food, fast food drive throughs all the time. They think it's normal not to sit down and eat your meal. I mean, you're just scarfing it down in five minutes is okay. Um, so I really think we have a lot more education to do to try and make people understand how important what we put in our mouth is. And, you know, in my office, we've been doing that for 17 years. And I know that every time we make it, you know, we can educate the mom or the dad, um, then we're educating the children as well. And I'm hoping that will make a big difference. So I have obviously a lot of uh, women and men who have Hashimoto's and I try to explain to them, look, you know, if you make these changes now and adapt your children to this, then this is just the way they're going to be raised. So it'll be a lot easier for them to follow this when they're in high school and college and, and you know, later. And I know that from personal experience. Um, so I, I think it's all about education. So I hope that this diet becomes the norm. But unfortunately, I think because of convenience and because of cost, it may not necessarily become the norm until and when somebody becomes sick. And that's when they come to us and then we finally can, you know, change their uh, their diet after that. But as you were saying about uh, crops being sprayed, maybe yeah. in time um, they will find a less aggressive way of uh, dealing with that. And if the um, factories and food processing plants alter their procedures... Um, but at the moment, the alternative ingredients are far more expensive. So it's not really cost effective, is it? But it's always the same. When you mass produce something, it becomes cheaper. So I'm sure if they mass produced 
healthier food, the price would, you know, per unit come down eventually. But oh, I think we're, we're quite a way off from from that, I'm sure. I think we're many, many, many lifetimes, you know, a couple of lifetimes away from that becoming the norm. And the sad thing is, you know, 50 or 75 years ago, that was the norm. So, you know, a lot of the um, ladies in their 70s and 80s, when I look at them and explain to them that we need to change their diet, I very much try to tell them when you were five, this was not an issue. You didn't have to think about this. The chicken were treated correctly. The, the cows weren't injected with hormones. You know, the fish were, you know, were, were fresh and wild caught. And so when I explained to them that that has changed over the last 35, 40, 50 years, then I think they finally understand that what I ate as a child was normal food. And what I eat now is not. And so then it becomes a little bit more apparent to them that we have to make these changes. But it's difficult, I think, because they're just like, well, I don't want to do that. And I can't, you know, I have to go out with my friends. And what do I do with this? And so it's, again, it's just education, education, education on how important it is. I mean, yes, every once in a while, of course, go have something fun and don't worry about it. But but if you do that every day, your health is going to pay and your immune system is going to pay. And I think that's, you know, we're seeing that with COVID. I mean, that's one of our biggest examples, I think, right now, is it's attacking people whose gut isn't healthy. It's attacking people whose immune system is not healthy, much far worse, um, I think, than people who have a healthy immune system and a healthy gut. You also mentioned candida, which so many people ask me, you know, I have candida, I can't get rid of it. What do I do? What is the approach you take? So we put them on a fairly strict diet for about eight weeks where they we eliminate any type of fruit or any type of sugar, any type of grain, any type of alcohol. So we focus them on eating whole foods of all proteins, um, vegetables and um, good fats. And we do explain that to them that they need to look for grass-fed beef here, uh, free-range organic eggs and chicken, wild-caught seafood, because a lot of the chemicals and, you know, food, as we talked about, can become a problem while we're trying to eliminate the candida. We then put them on a high-dose probiotic, prebiotic combination, and we give them medications, uh, one called Nystatin and another one called Fluconazole in a series um, to start eliminating them. So my approach is the first two weeks, I have them just get on the diet and start a probiotic, and they start to eliminate some of the yeast naturally after that, or the candida. After that, I put them on about two to three months of Nystatin. And then seven to 10 days of the fluconazole several weeks later. So it's a stepwise process. Um, once I've done that, if that does not work, then I might have to use a different antifungal. But probably 90% of the time that that uh, process works very well. Mm -hmm. And does it come back? Is it an issue further down the line or is it eliminated completely? Well, I think it can become an issue down the line if they don't stick with a healthy nutrition diet, if they don't stick with a probiotic, if they start to eat a lot more, you know, sugar again, if they take more antibiotics, if their system is stressed out, um, then we may have to do it again. So interestingly enough, a lot of my patients absolutely hate me the first two weeks of that yeast-free diet, but by week six, they're feeling so much better that they love us. And then, you know, birthdays come or the holidays come and they fall off track. 
Um, and then they'll call me January and say, okay, Dr. Davis, I need to do the yeast free diet again. So most of them call me back looking to do it again because they know they feel bad. They know their gut's been repopulated. They start to have those sinus infections again or chronic yeast infections again. So I think if they, if they really follow that diet and keep to that, you know, as a whole, right? So they make some, you know, splurges here and there. They stay on a probiotic. They stay healthy. They try not to be on antibiotics unless absolutely necessary. Then I think we have a good chance of eliminating it. Um, but if we go back to our normal lifestyle and we don't do any of those things, then I certainly think it's going to come back. Mm-hmm. Now, giving up sugar, how yes. easy do your patients find giving up sugar? They don't. That's why I said the first two weeks, they absolutely hate me. They probably curse me every day. But I think once their brain becomes less addicted to it, they realize how much they were addicted to it. Right. And so I think it's just a matter of realization. Like, okay, I was eating a lot more sugar than I thought. And so once they kind of travel through the journey with us and we have a nutritionist who's following up with them weekly and encouraging them and sending them recipes and really trying to keep them on track. But I do think it's very difficult, especially in today's world, with all the stress we have and all the alcohol that's been consumed um, and the sugar that's been eaten, it's really become quite, you know, quite a challenge. Um, but I think that once they do it, once they really get through it and get through the first few weeks, they realize how much better they feel, how much, you know, clearer they can think, um, how much more energy they have, the weight they lose. And so I think it becomes rewarding for them to continue that after that. But it is, it's a, it's a challenge initially for sure. What, Withdrawal symptoms do people commonly get when they're trying to give up sugar? The first few days, I find that they become very irritable. They can have headaches. Um, They can obviously have some fatigue. And so what I try to tell them to do is really eat frequent small meals those few days and hydrate really, really well. It's amazing how much we don't drink enough uh, water. So if I can get them to do that they're much more successful. And I also, for some of my higher sugar eaters, I won't start them cold turkey. I'll have them start to decrease their sugar. So I'll tell them, look at breakfast first, you know, take your breakfast, make it yeast-free for three, four days or a week, and then go to your lunch and then go to your dinner and then go to your snacks and then transition to our stricter diet. So if I know that they eat nothing but sugar and fast food and processed food, then I, and I titrate them much slower. But if I know that they're relatively okay eating, then I'll usually have them just start cold turkey. But, but I think mostly I see the headaches, sometimes you know, nausea, sometimes diarrhea, um, but the irritability and headaches are probably the two uh, most common side effects uh, from the withdrawal. Well, we've just about come to the end. It's been really amazing talking to you. I've learned an awful lot. So you were saying that you do telemed consultations now. So anybody listening who would like to contact you, how do they go about doing that? So you can go to our website, which is Woodlands Wellness and Cosmetic Center, and all of our information is there. You can welcome to call our office. And of course, our phone number is listed on our website as well. So that's the best way to get in touch with us. Well, thank you very much for having shared your experience with us. Thank you. I'm so thankful to you for allowing me to be on this show. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to learning more and more from you. Again, I think we owe you a a whole lot of gratitude for bringing this to the forefront um, with your own experience with multiple sclerosis. So thank you. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. 
Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.